Welcome to the Books of Titans podcast, where I seek truth in the world's great books. I'm your host, Eric Rostad, coming to you from the beautiful Books of Titans studio in Franklin, Tennessee. My goal is to read 200 of the great books over the next 10 years and share what I'm learning. I'll talk a bit about each book, tie ideas together from a variety of genres, and share the one thing I always hope to remember from each of the great books. Well, last week's episode, I had a lot of fun by pairing two books together, and I'm going to do the same thing in this episode. I'm going to pair two books together. The first is In Praise of Good Bookstores by Jeff Deutsch, and the second is On Writing and Writers by C.S. Lewis. These are It's a collection of, of statements by C.S. Lewis. So it's called On Writing and Writers, A Miscellany of Advice and Opinions. These are books 24 and 25 from my 2023 reading list. Well, it is July, and that means I am on a month where I'm taking a, a break of sorts. So I am, I've, this year I started reading through the great books, but each July and December, I'm giving myself a month where I just take a break, kind of maintain my sanity and, and, and read through some of the uh, books that, that start to pile up on that, on that to be read list. So these were two of the books and uh, it was just kind of neat that they were back to back because they're somewhat related. So I'll get into how they're related just in the sense of one's about bookstores and the other's about writing and, and uh, authors, advice to authors and that kind of thing. So it hits, hits kind of two sides of, of that coin. And uh, so it made for a good back to back. So I'm going to start off with in praise of good bookstores and discussing some of the things I enjoyed about that. In segment two, I'll cover the C.S. Lewis one. And then in segment three, I'll kind of tie them together in, in a way. So for in praise of good bookstores, I'd like to start by proposing that we start doing something going forward. This is you dear readers, that we start doing something. And it is this, that we start kissing our books upon completing them. And why would I say such a ridiculous thing? Well, let me just read from page 10 and 11 here. These books were read. Books are for use, after all, and, and were treated with reverence and love. Observant Jews are accustomed to kissing the cover of a book after closing it, a habit that was has remained with me throughout the years. End quote. That's the author speaking, but I say we take that on as well. So are you with me? Let's, uh, at, at, when, once we start finishing books, let's just pick it up, grab the front cover, give it a little kiss. I, I love that idea. Just, just kind of the honor and respect for it is of, of the books that we're reading. I, th I think it's a cool, cool idea. Uh, another cool idea in this book was to think of a bookshelf as a garden. And here, Jeff Deutsch is, is quoting Ibn Tibbin which is a, a fantastic name. And this Ibn Tibbon says this, let your bookcases and your shelves be your gardens and your pleasure grounds. Pluck the fruit that grows therein, gather the roses, the spices, and the myrrh, end quote. That's beautiful. This was perhaps my favorite part of the entire book. And this is a, a distinction between browsing and getting recommendations based upon an algorithm. So let me just read this paragraph here. While an algorithm might suggest a book that we are likely to enjoy based upon who we've been or what an adv advertiser might want us to think we want, nothing can replace the work of browsing to help us discover who we are or who we might become. End quote. I, I love that distinction. And I don't think I've ever thought about it in that sense. When we're, when we're confronted with a you might like this based upon what you've liked, that is pointing to the past. That's pointing to what we've liked in the past. That's who we were. Whereas 
uh, uh, browsing in a bookstore can help us to discover who we are or who we might become. We're confronted with other books that we may not have heard of, maybe other ideas. And so that's moving in, in an opposite direction. That's, that's moving forward, whereas an algorithm can only tell you what you, li- you might like based upon what you've liked w- by looking into the past. I thought that was a fantastic uh, idea and, and something I'll, I'll come back to in, in segment three of this episode here. Last thing for uh, this section that here that I'm kind of titling uh, good, cool things for readers. Uh, the last comes here. And I'm going to read this. This is page 75 and 76 and is about uh, private libraries. Calvino, in considering the importance of books of all times, urges the reader to invent their own ideal library of classics composed half of books that we have read and that we that have really counted for us and half of books we propose to read and will presume to come to count leaving a section of empty shelves for surprises and occasional discoveries jose gauss ortega and e gossett's student said that every private library is a reading plan Every private library is a reading plan. Susan Sontag, another seminary co-op member, called her library an archive of longings, end quote. So Jeff Deutsch is the, he's, he works at the seminary co-op in Chicago. And so he, he talks a lot about that bookstore in this book, but the book is really just an ode, a, a, a love, like a love story, a love note to, to bookstores, contains a number of quotes uh, throughout and really great quotes, but just talks about the experience of going to bookstores and, and what that means. So that first, the first part there, I highlighted things that are for readers. This next part here, I'm going to highlight things that are that are really about bookstores. And if if you don't know, I work at Landmark Booksellers in Franklin, Tennessee. I'm the business manager there, and one of the uh, so I, I just I try to read books about bookstores and, and books like this every every now and then, and so that's one of the reasons I picked this one up. But I got a lot out of this. I got a lot of food for ta- thought, uh, and and actually we we just purchased six copies of this book to share with with some of the staff members, and then we're gonna kind of do a book study on this book and just talk through some of these ideas. So here is a section of of things that I enjoyed talking about bookstores. Good bookstores reflect their communities. Exceptional bookstores both reflect and create their communities. I loved that distinction, just a bookstores reflecting community, but exceptional ones reflecting and creating communities. Uh, just just that idea of it, of it being a, a, a place in the community and something that can impact the community. Next up, b- uh, bookstore can give you permission to be among books outside of an institution of learning. That that is a really cool idea and, and something I hadn't considered before. So I guess you know, when I was in college, yes, a bookstore or not a bookstore, but just the library. It, it was kind of a it was common. It was it was right in the center of campus. I would go there quite a bit to to study, just to have a quiet place to study. And so you're around books. You're 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 assigned books to read for for class. And when you graduate, that can that can some in some ways go away. And I, I think, you know, one of the tragic things nowadays is that the libraries in some of these places are, are going away as well and they're and they're digitizing and that and that sort of thing. But what's what's neat about this idea of a bookstore is that a bookstore can give you permission to be amongst books outside of an institution of learning. So it just kind of brings that brings that back, brings that longing back. 
Uh, next up, the primary product of a bookstore is not the books, it's the browsing experience. So here's the quote. The good bookstore sells books, but it is its primary product, if you will, is the browsing experience. End quote. So uh, Jeff Deutsch in this book talks a lot about creating an atmosphere of discovery. And they even they, they were very specific in how they d- they designed the layout of their store to to almost encourage people to get lost, for it not to really make sense of like, you know, I go, I can go down here and then take a left and then I know where all the books are, but it almost like secret packs passages in a way of, of just encouraging that discovery aspect. Next up, the economic model of bookstores failed us, not we it. While bookstores are no longer the most efficient or perhaps cost-effective method of procuring specific books, the selling of books has always been one of the least interesting services that bookstores provide. End quote. Again, I, I, I like that idea. I mean, it, it's obvious, and, and it's obvious when, when I'm at Landmark and, and people are taking photos of, of books, I, I know they're just, they're, they're going to get it somewhere that's, that's cheaper. And and that that's that's how it is. Bookstores nowadays are not going to be the most efficient. Uh, the, Jeff Joyce talks a lot about this in this book about Amazon, where their their books are a lost leader. They're selling those below cost to to try to get you to buy other things. So it's in a sense it's devalued the the book itself. But where a bookstore really has the advantage is is being in that in that service of allowing you to browse. Next up, uh, there, there's a number, he, he highlights a number of different ways to categorize books. And this one really stuck out. This is Finney, Finney Books in Seattle. And they have a total of two ga- categories for all the books in their store. They have made up and true. And so at, at Landmark Booksellers here, we have, a, we have all these different sections, tons of different categories. This Finney Books in Seattle has two categories, made up and true. And it's just kind of fun to think about that. Even, even you know, I'm sure some books are hard to, to even put within that. Is this a made-up book or is this a, is a true book? Uh, so there's just kind of, of a fun uh, thought experiment there. I want to close out with just uh, three different quotes that I thought were, were cool from this book. And the first is this. Uh, this man has now become my hero. And so I want you to, to listen to, to this man who is now my hero. In his history of reading, El Alberto Manguel, an ex- exemplary reader and supremely bookish writer, tells of Abdul Qasem Ishmael, the 10th century grand vizier of Persia, and his 400 camels that carried his collection of 117,000 books when he traveled. Through a dexterous feat of herd indexing, he trained the camels to walk in alphabetical order, lest his collection succumb to the tyrant of chance. End quote. 400 camels carrying 117,000 books in alphabetical order. That's, that's pretty cool. So that, that man... That's just amazing to think about. You think of all those books, and and he could have kept them at home, but no, he he wanted to travel with them. So, very very cool. Next up, the importance of time. I have covered this on past episodes. This comes up all the time in books, and wanted to to share just what uh, how it comes up in this one. Seneca in his first letter to to Lush. Lucilius explains how precious time is, imploring him to hold it in his grasp and make the most use of it. You will not die at once, he says. You are dying every day. Use your time wisely, for nothing is ours except time. And yet time is the one loan which even a grateful recipient cannot repay. 
So a good good reminder, again, that, that shows up in so many different books that I read, the importance of time, how it's, it's uh, the most non-renewable resource, even more so than money. And the final thing here, why are we reading, asks Annie Dillard, and here is her response. If not in the hope of beauty laid bare, life heightened and its deepest mysteries probed, why are we reading if not in hope that the writer will magnify and dramatize our days, will illuminate and inspire us with wisdom, courage, and the possibility of meaningfulness, and will press upon our minds the deepest mysteries so that we may feel again the majesty and power, end quote. Well said, well said, Annie Dillard. Close out this section here just with reading stats, just to, so you, you know how long it might take you to read this same book. It's 167 pages. Took me three hours and 31 minutes to read. That was over three days, 56 pages per day, and that was July 6 through 8. Next up on writing, on writing and writers by C.S. Lewis. Well, speaking of landmark booksellers, we have both of these books in stock, and you can order them from us. We can ship anywhere in the United States, anywhere in the world, really, and that's the best way that you can support this podcast. So if you go to the show notes, I will link to these two books in the show notes. Well, every now and then, I think to myself, you know what? Maybe C.S. Lewis is not my favorite author. I've said for a long time he's my favorite author. I started reading him. He's actually one of the very first authors I ever remember reading. I, my parents got me that Narnia set when I was a kid, and those are some of the first books I ever remember handling. I, I don't think I ever made it through any of the books when I was that young of an age, but uh, I, I do remember carrying them and, and taking them to school and, and reading little bits at school and, and that sort of thing. And then in college, really having uh, uh, starting to, to dig deep into to Lewis's works. And so for a long time, I've said that Lewis is my favorite author, but then I've read other things and I'm thinking, you know, is he really? There's there's so much out, else out there. Maybe maybe someone else has that place now. But then I, I read books like this and I'm, I'm reminded of, 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 uh, of how how and why he holds that place in my life. And I, I would say he still holds that place as, as my favorite author. So, so the, the way this book is divided is into, there's three kind of main topic areas. And one is, is C.S. Lewis's writing process. So it's a collection of his essays, things he wrote in letters and other things where he's just writing about these things. So the first is his own writing process and then tips that he's given to other writers. And then some comments on specific authors and specific works. So that that's uh, how I'm going to have this segment flow is in those three areas. And, and, and then at the very end, I just want to read a few quotes. So the quotes I'm going to read here are a little longer. I'll, I'll try to put in a little commentary in between, but these are, these are so rich and there's so much gold here that, that I just want to, uh, to read through them. So the first, the first two quotes that I'm going to read are about C.S. Lewis's writing process. So here he says, some people seem to think that I began by asking myself, how could I say something about Christianity to children, then fixed on the fairy tale as an instrument, then collected information about child psychology and decided what age group I'd write for, then drew up a list of basic Christian truths and hammered out allegories to embody them. This is all pure moonshine. I couldn't write in that way at all. Everything began with images, a fawn carrying an umbrella, 
a queen on a sledge, a magnificent lion. At first, there wasn't even anything Christian about them. That element pushed itself in of its own accord. I thought that was so cool. And this, this is one of the, my main takeaways from this book is just uh, that Lewis started out with images. He didn't just sit down to write. He had images in these spanned years, as, as we'll find out in the next quote here. But that, that's how he started. And then he would just piece together these, these images that he'd been carrying around in his head. So let me read this, this next one here. One thing I'm sure of, all my seven Narnian books and my three science fiction books began with seeing pictures in my head. At first, they were not a story, just pictures. The lion all began with a picture of a fawn carrying an umbrella and parcels in a snowy wood. This picture had been in my mind since I was about 16. Then one day when I was about 40, I said to myself, let's try to make a story about it. At first I had very little how the story would go, but then suddenly Aslan came bounding into it. I think I had been having a good many dreams of lions about that time. Apart from that, I don't know where the lion came from or why he came. But once he was there, he pulled the whole story together, and soon he pulled the six other Narnian stories in after him. So you see, in a sense, I know very little about how this story was born. That is, I don't know where the pictures came from. And I don't believe anyone knows exactly how he makes things up. Making up is a very mysterious thing. When you have an idea... Could you tell anyone exactly how you thought of it? End quote. I love that. That is, that's just wonderful. Now on to tips for writing. And uh, in, in one of these letters, he gives a number of tips, uh, eight in total. But I want to read the first three because I thought they were awesome. First one, turn off the radio. Second one, read all the good books you can and avoid nearly all magazines. And then three, always write and read with the ear, not with the eye. He goes on to say later about the ear versus the eye, mouth poetry while you read it. He said this, uh, a habit since lost he had was of not smoking his pipe while reading a poem. And that was so that he could, that he could mouth the words. And he just says, and so that's on the reading side, but on the writing side as well, write with the ear, not with the eye. I thought, I thought that was cool. And I just loved that little tidbit that he had in parentheses saying that he had this habit of not smoking while reading a poem, but he had lost, he had since lost that habit. That's so funny to me that he had this habit so he could mouth the words, but uh, the pipe actually won in the end. And and he, he would rather have the pipe in his mouth than, than to mouth the words of poetry while, while reading them. That's, uh, that's just so awesome. Next up. Let me read this. One of the first things we have to say to a beginner, and again, this is things he's writing to writers. One of the things we have to say to a beginner who has brought us his manuscript is avoid all epithets which are merely emotional. It is no use telling us that something was mysterious or loathsome or awe-inspiring or voluptuous. Do you think your readers will believe you just because you say so? You must go quite a different way to work by direct description, by metaphor and simile, by secretly invoking, evoking powerful associations, by offering the right stimuli to our nerves in the right degree and the right order. And by the very beat and vowel melody and length and brevity of your sentences, you must bring it 
about that we, we readers, not you, exclaim how mysterious or loathsome or whatever it is. Let me taste for myself and you'll have no need to tell me how I should react to the flavor. End quote. I love that advice. Uh, don't tell me that something is awe-inspiring or voluptuous or mysterious. Describe it in such a way that I come to that conclusion. Fantastic advice. Next up, this is page 38, and this is uh, this the, the connection between writing and thinking. I don't know what I mean till I see what I've said. In other words, writing and thinking were a single process. End quote. Next up, I've come to the conviction that if you cannot translate your thoughts into uneducated language, then your thoughts were confused. Power to translate is the test of having really understood one's own meaning. End quote. Those, those two quotes really tie together, but just that idea of, of writing being a way of thinking. And, it, and in fact, if you can't write it out in a way that's, that's in, in uneducated languages, he said, or, or something maybe a five-year-old could understand, then do you really understand it at all? Next up, uh, this, this is excellent, and, and I'm going to read uh, a, a good chunk of this section. This talks about writing in the sense of propaganda uh, of a sort uh, verse in, in encountering. So rather, uh, rather because I feel sure that the question, what do modern children need, will not lead you to a good moral. If we ask that question, we are assuming too superior in attitude. It would be better to ask, what moral do I need? For I think we can be sure that what does not concern us deeply will not deeply interest our readers, whatever their age. But it is better not to ask the question at all. Let the pictures tell you their own moral. For the moral inherent in them will rise from whatever spiritual roots you have succeeded in striking during your whole the whole course of your life. But if they don't show you any moral, don't put one in. For the moral you put in is likely to be a platitude or even a falsehood. The only moral that is of any value is that which arises inevitably from the whole cast of the author's mind. End quote. I love that. I, I think of... Um, I think in the sense of if you are trying to insert something into a story, if, if you're not just letting it, it grow naturally, if, if you're trying to insert something to, as he said, find, uh, put in what children, modern children need, uh, it's going to be propaganda. You're, you're writing a piece of propaganda. You're not writing a story. I love how he just says it of if, if, if there is no moral, don't put one in, but the moral inherent in them will arise from whatever spiritual roots you have su succeeded in striking during the whole course of your life. So the, the moral should not be something that you put in, in, in the sense of, of unnaturally putting something in really for the purpose of propaganda. It should arise out of the story itself. And that's going to be from deep in the roots of your life. I loved that idea. It's something I think about a lot. And just the way he writes about it is just is just incredible. Now, here are some things he said about specific authors. The first is George MacDonald. He says, I know of nothing that gives me such a feeling of spiritual healing, of being washed, as to read G. MacDonald, end quote. I, I've thought and felt the same when reading MacDonald as well. Uh, so that was a, that was a, a perfect way of saying that. Next up, he, he compares Animal Farm to 1984, and this is pretty neat. What puzzles me is the marked preference of the public for 1984, for it seems to me, apart from its magnificent and fortunately detachable appendix on Newspeak, to be merely a flawed, interesting book. But the farm 
so Animal Farm, is a work of genius which will well outlive the particulars and, let us hope, temporary conditions that provoked it, end quote. He just goes on for a few pages here of just talking about how much better Animal Farm was than 1984, and Lewis really considered Animal Farm just to be a pure classic, one where you would not be able to put in or take away a, even a word, like it, it was just perfect. Uh, he has some just incredible things to say about Tolkien, uh, both about The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. So here uh, is one, one thing that I thought was really cool. The value of the myth is that it takes all the things we know and restores to them the rich significance which has been hidden by the veil of familiarity, end quote. So just talking about uh, Tolkien's uh, use of, of myth and, and how that can, that can sidestep a lot of the barriers, barriers we, we may have. So if we're reading a, 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 a piece that, that is, that is in reality, uh, as opposed to reading a myth or something like the Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings might actually get past a lot of the gates that we have up and, uh, go past that veil of familiarity as, as Lewis calls it. But you've got to read the things that he says about, about Tolkien's works. And, and it's so funny to read it too. Cause he's like, I, I really think, you know, the Hobbit, I really think this is going to be a classic. And, um, and he, he was clearly right about that. And he says about the, uh, the Lord of the Rings as well. And, and actually I think he's just talking about the first book of the series, which would contain the first two parts of of uh, Lord of the Rings, but but he's just talking about that, and he's already saying, you know, this is this is going to be a classic. Now onto Walt Whitman, he says, I cannot bear Walt Whitman. So it was funny. He was, you know, he would he would be quite honest of of his his feelings about these different authors and their works. And last all uh, last of all, Jane Austen. Here's his quote about her: Her books have only two faults, and both are damnable. They are too few and too short. End quote. All right, a few quotes just to, to close out this section. So the reason for fairy tales, let's read about that first. On that side as author, I wrote fairy tales because the fairy tale seemed the ideal form for the stuff I had to say. Succinct, I like it. It's a, a good reason. Now, the next part, let me read. Um, this is... One paragraph. All right. It would be truer to say that the fairy land arouses a longing for he knows not what. It stirs and troubles him to his lifelong enrichment with the dim sense of something beyond his reach and far from dulling the emptying or emptying the actual world gives it a new dimension and depth. He does not despise real woods because he has uh, read of enchanted woods. The reading makes all real woods a little enchanted. This is a special kind of longing. The boy reading the school story of the type I have in mind desires success and is unhappy once the book is over because he can't get it. The boy reading the fairy tale desires and is happy in the very fact of desiring for his mind has not been concentrated on himself as it often is in the more realistic story. End quote. I, I love that. I mean, that that is so well said in just the how fairy stories they can they can elicit this desire this longing that that stories more realistic stories can never can never reach and he's talking about this in the sense of of what 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 do we give kids to read and i, I love that 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 came out and uh he talks later about um about this parental fear of of 
or, or parental desire not to scare children with with certain s- stories. And he says, look, you know, when I was a kid, I had I had night tremors, I, I had fears. So I'm, I'm not trying to dismiss this. But what Lewis says is none of my fears came from fairy tales. And he just kind of goes through some of the fears that he has. And then he goes and he says, you know, none of those came from fairy tales. So there's a there's there's great value in in having children read these books and and not to to keep them uh, from a, a worry that they're going to be scared. The the fears that that he has a, had a child and the fears that he, he saw in other children, they were not from these fairy stories. They were from other other things. Last up, he says, you have not read a book if you've only read it once. And this busted me pretty, pretty good because I'm sitting here, I'm trying to go through the great books and I'm just reading them once. And here's what he says about that. An unliterary man may be defined as one who reads books only once. There is hope for a man who has never read Mallory or Boswell or Tristram Shandy or Shakespeare's sonnets. But what can you do with a man who says he has read them, meaning that he has read them once and thinks that that settles the matter? For excitement, it is just what must disappear from a second reading. You cannot, except at the first reading, be really curious about what happened. If you find that the reader of a popular romance, however uneducated a reader, however bad the romance is, goes back to his favorite, old favorites again and again, then you have pretty good evidence that they are to him a sort of poetry. The re-reader is looking not for actual surprises, which can only come once, but for certain surprisingness. The point has often been misunderstood. We do not enjoy a story fully at the first reading. Not to the curiosity, the sheer narrative lust has been given its sop and laid asleep. We are at are we at leisure to savor the real beauties. Till then, it is like wasting great wine on a ravenous natural thirst, which merely wants cold wetness. The children understand this well when they ask for the same story over and over again, and in the same words. They want again to have that surprise of discovering what really seemed l- that what seemed Little Red Riding Hood's grandmother is really the wolf. Is it better when you know it is coming? Free from the shock of actual surprise, you can attend better to the intrinsic surprisingness of the plot structure. End quote. Sorry for the long quote, but that, that was so good. That was so, so helpful. And and just that it, it, it's good to read stories twice. I, I love that he points that out in children. The children, they love that. They understand this idea. They, they keep asking for the same story over and over again. Why are they doing that? They know the story, but there's, there's a deeper, there can be deeper things that, that come about the, these rereadings. Closing out here with the reading stats. This, this is how long it took. It's a 189 page book. It's a small book. So uh, there's not a whole, num- whole lot of of words on each page. Took me two hours and 45 minutes to read it. That was over two days. So I did 95 pages per day. It was a pretty quick read. That was July 8 and 9 of 2023. All right, I'm just going to close out in the next segment just by tying together these two books and, and the ideas therein. Well, these two books were a neat pair to read back to back. Bookstores don't exist without authors, and authors, why they don't, while they don't need a bookstore to write a book, uh, it sure helps in the selling of books. So there's this natural connection between the praise of good bookstores and on writing and, and kind of the author side of it. But there's a third element involved as well, and that is the connection point between the author and the bookstore, and that is the reader. The reader must be given the chance to discover 
And so my one thing was that comment by Jeff Deutsch about algorithms reinforcing who you were in the past, whereas browsing allows you to be given the chance to discover and to be to 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 become someone new in a way uh, that when you're browsing, you come across things. There's a serendipity to it that is there in a in in a way with the algorithms but but not as much as when you're browsing in a bookstore. I love watching when people are in landmark and I just seeing what they're doing and where they're going and where they're browsing. In in where where do they gravitate? And where do you gravitate when you go in? Uh, if if you like a certain author, who influenced that author? Could you also be influenced by the books that that author was influenced by or the authors that that in, author was influenced by? If you just read a book about, say, Egypt, did you know that there are books about Egyptian art that might just blow your mind, that might help you capture some of the ideas that you just read about Egypt and, and see how they were displayed in, in art? Did you know that St. Augustine's Confessions were, were based upon the, the structure of the Odyssey? Well, what if you read both of those books back to back? And this is just some of the discoveries, some of the, some of the serendipity that, dipity that happens when you're, when you're going through a bookstore. Books come from books. And so there's this entire library that you can go in. And maybe you haven't seen one, you haven't been in one since you were in school. But bookstores allow that experience to, to, to be in, in a number of different places. So this episode is a call to take that time in bookstores instead of trusting the algorithms. And if, if you like this, then you like that. that. That's basically what an algorithm is showing you. And again, that's going to be pointing to the past. But what happens in a bookstore when you spend some time, when you get lost and you browse, that's where the gold is. And that's where you can be looking forward of wh what direction you want to go. Just a reminder here too, that, that uh, I'm not just talking about Amazon in the sense of algorithms saying, if you liked this, you'll like that. I, I'm, I'm talking about social media as well. And that is based around an algorithm. And so every time you like something, you click that like button, you're pigeonholing, pigeonholing yourself more and more, you're just going to start being shown more and more what you like. But again, just remember that's pointing to the past. That's what you liked in the past, even if it was just a minute ago, that was the past. But what about moving forward? Just, just keep that in mind. So this is not just about bookstores. It's a larger point just to set aside time for this serendipity, this browsing, this, this, this being aware and for growing and becoming rather than only being shown things that, that you liked in the past. Oh, and, and do not forget this. Please start kissing your books. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I would love to hear from you if you've read either of these two books. Maybe you've been to the, the seminary co-op bookstore in Chicago that uh, Jeff Deutsch, the author of the first book here, where he works. I'd, I'd love to hear your stories. I'd love to hear what you thought of these two books if you've read them. Or if uh, C.S. Lewis is, is a favorite of yours, let's uh, let's reminisce. Send me, send me a note at eric at booksoftitans.com. That is eric with a K, so E-R-I-K at booksoftitans.com and uh, share. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I love when people email me. 
after uh, after listening. And that's one of the reasons I started this this project is to to get in touch with other people who have enjoyed some of the same books that that I have. You can follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter, and the website is stock full of resources to help you find the best books and to create your own reading list. I also have my great books list there, so you can see what order I'll be reading them in. And I am calling it the Great Books Plus. So it's it's the great work, but then also a book that helps me to better understand either the author or the context, cultural context in which that that work was written. Also, a lot of these great books are just hard. They're they're difficult, and so I need help just kind of understanding what's in them. So that that's the purpose of these these guidebooks, the the Great Books Plus. So I'll be back in a week or two to discuss another book or uh, from my 2023 reading list. And until then, keep reading, keep learning, keep listening. I am out. Mm-hmm.